0: GEICO presents, oh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, While you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? (laughs) My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. (laughs) The GEICO Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit GEICO.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance.
1: Contour from Cox has all your favorites, all in one place. And with the Contour Remote, you can use your voice to find them on live TV, on demand, and streaming apps like Netflix, Prime Video, and more. See Cox.com for details.
0: From to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Jen. I'm Natalie. And we are the Art History Babes. We're having an evening here. We are. We're just hanging out. Uh, we're drinking. Drinking. Drinkin'. We're Sipping on a whole array
1: of of different
0: yeah, alcohols. Yes. So we're still we're still in like the festive eggnog spiked drinks. We're also drinking wine. There's a recipe for it's basically like hot chocolate and red
1: wine. Oh. And apparently it's really fucking good. But it's gotta be like high quality hot chocolate and it's gotta be like mold wine. Like Giratelli.
2: Yeah,
0: for real. Oh. But it looks really
2: good. Faith made that really good mold wine, so we can get that recipe from her. Shout out to
0: Faith!
1: I love Hi, a good, Faith. I love a good mold wine. Yeah, Faith is our really good. our
0: good friend in the art studio department, um, working on her MFA, and we hope to have her on yeah, the she, Art History Babes one day.
1: She's gonna be on in a couple weeks. We're gonna talk about alchemy.
0: With Woo! Her. We're gonna talk about some esoteric. Shit. We should have her on too if we ever talk about kefir.
1: Oh um, yeah! We do a kefir Aww. episode. I was just at the the Kiefer room in SFMOMA, and it was fantastic and multidimensional and so many different textures.
0: I gotta get back there. I it's I went there. It's fantastic. I went is. there like twice um, over the last I don't know, like since they've opened, and I just felt so overwhelmed by the crowds. I hope to try to get out there on a, like a weekday, you know? Yeah, for sure. But
1: seven floors of modern and contemporary
0: art. Oh, it's so much, great.
1: So much good stuff. It's sure. it's
0: wonderful. They they had a whole room dedicated to my boy William Kentridge. Look him up, uh, South African artist, super interesting work. Did you
1: go into the little like it's like a room and he's got like an installation? And yeah, it was like... kind of like a puppet, little yeah, puppet show. It was, but so it was like cool. multimedia so with the uh, yeah, it was
0: like puppets, but there's also well not puppets, they're like marionettes right? The little whatever. And then there was um, like film and um, they were playing some piece of like opera, like a German opera. I don't know what it was, but it was great. No, I yeah. he's he's interesting. He's so multimedia. I really dig multimedia artists. Um, so he's doing a lot of stuff. I don't know if he's still, is he still alive? I think I'm he's, not sure. Look up William Kenridge. There's a really good Art 21 on him. Ah, um, oh, Art 21. Yes, it's that's my, something one of my favorites. We haven't talked about
1: Art 21. If you're not familiar, you need to check it out. Check it
0: out. Ah, uh, so yeah, art stuff. We were also exploring the world of trap rap. Yeah,
1: before we like to before we record, we just kind of hang out and like have a drink and unwind. Walk, unwind. What did
0: What did you do this
1: week? It, exactly. Get at least um, a glass in us. And we, you know, we we have we all have very different and eclectic tastes in music, and we we ended up. Somehow diving into contemporary <laughs> trap trap music, um, or our lack of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, as as I was saying before, like it's there's a new wave of kind of like hard rap that's like mm-hmm. really different. It's um, kind of atonal too. Yeah, it's doing
0: something different, and I I definitely appreciate that. If you are someone like me who spends way too much time on Instagram and other social media, um, there's just no end of memes of, um, of 21 Savage. <laughs> the most popular one, is it's him on a couch and he's, you know, drinking out of the white styrofoam cup and it just says, like, it's a knife, right? Like, referring to the tattoo on his forehead. Mm-hmm. But then everyone just changes it to, like, whatever. Whatever the context. You know how memes work. I don't need to tell you that. (laughs) I just sent Corey um, a meme. It was like, uh, what does it say? I'll pull it up.
1: (laughs) It's so good. Um, (laughs) so it just, it's this meme, and it just says, 21 Savage. I am literally plotting murder and have every intention of going through with it. And then me, and it's just these three dudes just, like, dancing hard. You're like, (laughs) about to hit the dopest dad
0: yeah. of 2016. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. You know what's funny is I really, I just, I can't get into a lot of the new rap, and I try, to. I really, you know, I want to like it because, you know... I'm 27, and I'm starting to feel out of touch. <laughs> You're starting to feel out of touch.
2: I literally didn't know any of these people existed until tonight. Right. I know, it's pretty funny. Like, me and Jen, we're
1: like the older, older members of the yeah. crew. And Nat, our little baby over here. She's
2: like, what's going on? 23 <laughs> on the outside, 63 on the inside. She's
0: like, <laughs> I was just at home listening to Bob Dylan and uh, reading... What what do you read? Sylvia Plath? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just i just
1: Hey, kidding. I love Sylvia <laughs> Plath.
0: I love, I love, I love, I love her <laughs> Bell Jar, that's a classic. I mm. read the Bell Jar one time when I was in Mexico. I was on a family vacation, and I wasn't having a very fun time. Maybe because I was reading the Bell Jar. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's kind of a downer, Woo! but but I don't know. I connect with it in a lot of like almost uncomfortable ways. They're like, this is so real. But wait,
2: Sylvia Plath was so sad. Right, like everything she's yeah.
0: going through, I'm like, yes, what's the point of it all? I definitely
2: <laughs> pick up on the emotions of books I read, though. Oh, yeah. like, if I'm reading a really angsty book, I'll like just get mad for no reason and like pick a fight with someone. Or, like, well, on some level, that's, totally... the, that's the point of literature It's yeah. to help
1: when you feel like you can't connect with certain things about life or people, like literature helps you do that. You know, yeah. like you connect with an experience, and you're that like and Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan does that too. Oh, Bob, um, oh, Bob. You know, Twenty One Savage. He's got a pretty, oh, <laughs> a pretty legit experience. He's trying to express.
0: <laughs> I think so. Um, um, for yeah. real, I'm a huge fan of the man who goes by Just Rain. On Twitter. How do you spell it? It's J-U-S space R-E-I-G-N. Is it like an underscore space? There is an underscore. Um, On Instagram, he's just rain one word. Um, This is not his real name. (laughs) Jasmine Swizard. (laughs) Easily the hottest white guy on Instagram. He's not white. He is a... um, Oh my god, I love that snow picture. He's, that's, yeah, he's great. He's, um, Sikh? Yeah. and um, and uh, from Canada and he's just hilarious and so yeah I don't really know what's popular but then he'll do these hilarious uh, like Punjab remixes of popular rap songs and then I just like laugh and then and, you, and then you and know and what's cry. popular and then I'm like that's hot right now <laughs> And I listened. I listened to the Twenty One Savage No Heart Punjabi remix yeah. before I ever heard. Can we play a little bit of it? Yeah, yeah we should just listen let's to just it. Play it. It's so. It's so good. I'm like, this guy. Someone needs to give this guy a Grammy already. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, the video definitely Um, adds to it. I just, God, I just
0: love
1: that guy. We'll put a link up on our sources so you can enjoy him and follow him on Instagram as well because he's pretty entertaining. He's cute too, so
0: we like what you do.
1: But yeah, so uh, that's a. That's a little uh, pop culture check-in with the Art History Veins. Totally
0: (laughs) totally related though, pop culture uh, is our topic today. Yeah,
1: so we've talked on multiple occasions about doing a comic-related episode because there's so much in the world of comics and graphic novels and it's something that's often overlooked in the realm of art history, but it very much is art history, visual culture, so we're going to talk a little bit about it today. Obviously not... You know, in any way uh, exhaustive, but we just picked out some important comic illustrators and we're going to talk about them. Work that we like. Yeah, yeah. Work that we find uh, intriguing. Mm. So, Jen,
0: would you like to? So, as the resident geek of the Art History Babes, I grew up reading comics, um, not really your stereotypical, you know, Marvel DC comics. I never really cared too much about the superhero comics but i have no ill words towards um that particular subset of comic book culture um because it's really important i really think that comic books are so fascinating and and there's so much possibility with the the medium of a comic book format so um let's talk a little bit about the history of comic books so Preface to this, if you are interested in comic books and graphic novels, um, there's a great book that is called Understanding Comics by Scott McLeod. I highly recommend it. It is great if you're a design major, if you're a literature major, if you're majoring in art history, I would highly recommend this book. And so a lot of the information that is informing this sort of history of the comic book format comes from that book. So um, what is comics? That's a really huge question and we're not gonna get too into the long convoluted history of of comics, but what we can say is that um, there's a little bit of an agreement as far as a definition goes. Scott McCloud, is citing the great Will Eisner, who's sort of like a legend in the comic book world. Um, He is um, the author of works such as The Spirit and uh, another work called uh, A A Contract with God. So Will Eisner used the term sequential art when describing comics. So now... McLeod takes that definition a little bit further by saying that comics are, they are sequential art, but in order to distinguish the comic format from something like animation, um, it's important to take into account that comics utilize the aspect of space. While animation does depict visual art in sequence, um, comics utilize this spatial juxtaposition of the different sort of scenes so the preferred definition then is uh, comics are juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence intended to convey information and or produce an aesthetic response in the viewer so for our purposes that is the definition of comics that we're going to use and so through this definition then we can trace the history of comics very far back. MacLeod does a great job of bringing up several different possible origins to the comic format. What we know as comic books today, so a, a, a book of these sequential images, that kind of arose around the turn of the 20th century. But MacLeod traces these origins all the way back to... Anything from like pre-Columbian, so that's before the arrival of Columbus and Europeans. So pre-Columbian manuscripts called codices. So these are primarily found in Central America. So we know of like the Aztec codices in Mexico. An example is this 36 foot long, brightly colored codex. It tells the story of this great military and political hero. His name was Eight Deer. Ocelot's claw—that's a badass name. <laughs> name. What a name! Hold on,
1: where is that? Right there,
0: eight deer. Okay, eight. eight. Just right. the number. <laughs> Just the number eight deer. Ocelot's claw. <laughs> Whoa! What's that last word? That is amazing. Ocelot—it's like a small jungle cat. Cool. Yeah, eight deer,
1: small jungle cat claw. Yeah. Man, that is badass.
0: Another example is um, the the Bayou Tapestry. Mm. from um from france so that's even older that's a 230 foot long tapestry um it details the norman conquest of england beginning in 1066 that's so cool it's really cool do Uh, you have an image of that i will put an image up I don't have one don't on have one my one. person, but yes, we're, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I didn't bring the tapestry, unfortunately. But uh, it's not with me at this moment. It's pretty big, <laughs> it's cool, it's pretty pretty long.
2: Long. it long. What it was meant to wrap around the entire dining hall, yeah. Like, and it tells times the story. Or something
0: ridiculous, it's, yeah, and it tells the story of the um, the the Norman Conquest, and it's done in a sequential manner. So you're seeing the same characters in different scenes enacting the the whole conquest. Um, And then if you want to go back even further, we can even take into account some of the works that are seen in ancient Egyptian tombs. So a particular example here is uh, the Egyptian tomb of Mena, who was a scribe from 1300 BCE. It depicts the life of Mena, all these different acts that he did in his in his living life and, and how he was an important person. And then there's even, there's so many examples. Um, he even cites Trajan's Column in Rome. Uh, he cites Japanese scrolls, which many have cited as the origins of modern day Japanese manga, which are Japanese comics. So there is so much that we can pick from as origins of the comic format. For, it seems, thousands of years, humans have been interested in depicting narratives in sequential pictorial formats. So I like it. Um, And so the invention of printing really revolutionized the comic medium. What we know to be like the traditional format of comics today is very much made possible by the advent of mass scale printing. 20th century, this, as, this sort of concept of the graphic novel has become popularized, you know, sort of separating comics from this like serialized format. So you know, there's like, I don't know how many hundreds of Spider-Man issues and Um, You know, you kind of wait every week or month or however biweekly for the new Spider-Man. Now there's more of these great sort of novels. I mean, you can really think of them as novels, but they are pictorial, so graphic novels. And, And we're seeing really interesting work and a lot of heavy topics are being discussed in this graphic novel format. And that's a little bit about what... We're going to focus on today because I really believe that the move from these traditional sort of uh, pop culture works a lot of it has evolved in the sense that comic book artists at least from like the 1970s on are working with much more um, hardcore issues and have wanted to depict these issues whether they're highly personal or highly political in this comic format because there is a power to images accompanied by text.
1: I mean, I think that's just like what's so compelling about comics and graphic novels is it's it's visual, it's visual art and literature combined. Mm-hmm. And it's like I think there's so much there's so much overlap there that people don't really realize because they're considered like separate disciplines, but like um as an art historian, I think we Work a lot in literature as well as visual art. Like there's a lot of crossover in like, yeah. Comic books are that made real. You know, it's like yeah, it's, it's a novel meets visual depictions of of ideas.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, literature and art crosses over all the time and we often ask ourselves in art history about the narrative you know what's the the narrative here or you know there's scenes from mythological tales or you know allegorical stories and there's a lot of having to know the background story for a lot of the work that we look at so having the story just there already is great and I mean
2: I know Jen you were I don't know if you've mentioned it yet in the recording but we were talking earlier about this graphic novels and comics almost get slighted as an art form and people don't consider them to be high art or anything close to that yeah but like re- but reading some of these i mean I think that sometimes the added bonus for artists is that they don't have to explain what they're creating. Mm-hmm. They get to make something visual and something that's beyond words, and then they can le- kind of leave it at that if they choose. You know, they can verbalize it if they want to, but they have an option. For these people who are combining the two, It's I think it seems pretty challenging. I don't Yeah, know, no, like, I think yeah. it takes m- multiple talents yeah. to like
1: make that work. Um, because, yeah, exactly, with, with visual art on its own, sometimes... As an artist, you can just walk away and be like, yeah. you figure it out. You, you, don't know? Have, yeah, yeah. you don't have to figure it out yourself. And that's yeah. the beauty <laughs> to it. Exactly. And that's what's great about it. But yeah, if you're combining your visuals with literature, you have to have the, the skills of
2: being a writer. You have mm-hmm. to have yeah. that. And not all writers have the skill to, first of all, draw and illustrate yeah. in a appropriate manner, but also to... To simplify your language. Yeah. Because it takes like a simplicity and kind of like you have to be concise in a way that... You have to be relatable. Yeah. The way that regular literature doesn't... It's not
0: necessary. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And I mean, the thing to always remember, too, is that most actually... It's actually rare to read a comic or a graphic novel, whatever your chosen word is, where the artist and the author are the same person. So that brings in a whole other dimension where an artist or group of artists is then in charge of bringing forth the vision of a very creative author. I'm thinking of people like Alan Moore, who did famous works like Watchmen V for Vendetta, Swamp Thing, many of these stories like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, many of these stories have been adapted into film, um, and I hate them. But uh, <laughs> actually, V for Vendetta was pretty good, but the yeah. the book is so much better. But I didn't know there was a book, and now I'm really excited yeah, to read it. I have, two I have new it. Books. You can borrow oh, it. Great. I have all of Alan Moore's um, comics. I brought Watchmen uh, because it's just so cool, and you guys should read it and Watchmen is one of my favorite stories ever, and it's so well done. Um, the movie, I feel, was just a bastardization of the um, vision of Alan Moore, um, so I don't recommend it. If you like that movie, then cool, but if you haven't read the graphic novel, you should do that, and you'll watch the movie again and be like, oh no, it's not that good. Um, so that's a, this is an example of a hugely popular writer who is crazy talented, one of my favorite authors, and he has this vision, and he's working with an artist, this guy, Dave Gibbons. Dave Gibbons is given the huge task of taking Alan Moore's work and depicting it in a visual format, and it just works, and it's just amazing. And so I just don't feel like these works are given enough credit. When you're as an artist, someone who has autonomy over the work, many times, most of the time, what we consider art making in the traditional sense is highly personal. It's coming out of your brain and you have your vision and you're like a singular entity that's in charge of your vision and you get to decide how your vision is going to be because you are the one doing it. Um, Whereas there's a lot of unsung heroes in the world of graphic novels. These, these hugely talented artists who are taking the work done by someone like Alan Moore, who I think he's amazing, but he's also a complete nut. Okay. And so (laughs) taking, taking the, the writings of someone like Alan Moore and making this like Thick. This is a thick It is thick volume of work here. It's just amazing. And it makes me excited. But in from someone who has never read
2: Watchmen or seen the movie even, looking at the cover, it is nice just to visually assess that their names are equally sized. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just you know, purely visual analysis, but (laughs) Alan Moore does come first, but Dave Gibbons is right underneath, same size, same font. There is not even like a distinct, they don't distinguish between author and illustrator on the cover at all. So that's nice. They're giving them equal credit because when, if you looked at these illustrations, I mean, credit where credit is due. These
0: are beautiful
2: and very, very detailed illustrations.
0: This is just one example of, like, most which are author, has a, you know, comic book writer, has to jive with his artist or group of artists. Another one who comes to mind is uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Neil Gaiman, amazing writer. I love all of his stories. Everything he's done, I think, is amazing. The Sandman um, whole series is just dozens of different artists and it's really fun to read each volume of sandman because every issue so each volume is a certain amount of issues and each each issue that you're reading is done by different artists and so you're seeing the same characters drawn in wildly different ways and but it's the same story and it's not jarring at all and that's another one, if you haven't read Sandman.
1: See, I've actually, I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan, and I haven't
0: read Sandman. I have all of the Sandmans. I, like, I am say, isn't them. that, like,
2: your favorite? Haven't you mentioned that that's out there was... for
0: you? Yeah, that was a really good gift that my, um, my boyfriend at the time, he gifted me every volume of Sandman for Christmas one year, and that was, like, it must have been really expensive, because they're not cheap, and, um, I think that that's another, it's Sandman is beautiful, by the way. Neil Gaiman's story is amazing. He touches yeah, he on like every mythological story. He's crazy talented. He's like, so
1: smart. I've been I've been told by multiple people I need to read Sandman, and I do. It's ridiculous, but like if you're not familiar, he's also the author of Coraline, mm-hmm. and I read American
0: Gods. Yeah,
1: that's a big one. Like he's crazy quotable, and he's so. He's one of those authors that you're like, you just get life, don't you? (laughs) He does. He does. He's very talented. Um, Yeah, I haven't read Sandman, but I know I need to. Sandman
0: was one of those series where when I read the last issue, I just was depressed for like a few, like a week. I was depressed because I was done. And I just was like, no. Why? Why? That's the best and the worst feeling. Yeah, oh, it was when you just... feel like you lost something oh, when you man. end a book. <laughs> like
2: you gain and you lose. <laughs> yeah. It... Modern fertility. Dang, I really wish I could sing because I wanted to follow that tune, but I cannot sing. I can't
1: sing either, but I just, I like making little jingles. How about it, Nat?
2: I mean, you probably thought about your next step in your career relationship, but what about planning for a baby or a metaphorical baby?
1: Or or planning for not
2: a baby. All of those totally reasonable (laughs) options. Exactly. As a woman, we kind of have to make a decision to either have or not have babies, and- Modern Fertility is here to help with that decision-making.
1: Modern Fertility is a quick and easy hormone test you can take at home. So if you're thinking about trying for a baby or you want to know maybe what your options are for the future or... Or if you just want to know more information about kind of how all that works and your hormone levels and just, you know, generally be informed about your reproductive health, which is a great thing to be informed of,
2: Modern Fertility is here to help. So I was able to take it and got my results back within like eight days pretty quick it took me to the website where they had all my information and I'm happy to say that nothing came back alarming. It was really easy to understand and they use very simple language, but they also have options where you can read into the different hormones more closely. So if you do have something that maybe is slightly out of whack, you can read more about it and figure out you know, how to raise or lower or what that might mean for your day-to-day life it's really interesting or your fertility i guess i was kind of just looking at it for my day-to-day but um speaking from experience like yeah i definitely feel a little more empowered just knowing that all of my hormones are working and doing what they're supposed to do yeah that is definitely good
1: news also it is very affordable compared to similar testing um oftentimes that kind of testing can cost over a But with Modern Fertility, you can get the exact same information for just $159.
2: That's such a good price. Yeah. Plus, you can also talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse once you get your results. So you can get answers to questions that you might have, specific questions that are related to your results. And that is really valuable.
1: Yeah. So it's just great information to have. Very affordable price. Very easy to do. Comfort of your own home. Don't even have to go to the doctor's office.
2: And right now, Modern Fertility is offering Art History Babes listeners $20 off their test when you go to modernfertility.com slash historybabes. That's $20 off your fertility test
1: when you go to modernfertility.com slash historybabes.
2: modernfertility.com slash historybabes. Modern
0: fertility. It was rough. Oh man, I could just go on. But I would like to spotlight an artist and an author Mm -hmm. who really, I feel, propelled the comic book, graphic novel format from this world of pop culture into the world of high art. And that is Mr. Art Spiegelman and his story, Mouse. I am so in love with this story. I was introduced to this story when I was in community college taking English 2. English 2 was taught by this very funny, charismatic, huge nerd. <laughs> and his whole um, his whole syllabus was graphic novels. That's the first time I read Watchmen. That was the first time I read Mouse. And so Mouse, spelled M-A-U-S, is the story... Of Art Spiegelman's parents, who survived Nazi concentration camps in the 1940s, so he chronicles the story of his parents from the mid 1930s until the end of uh, World War II and, and 1945. So Art Spiegelman is doing so much here, and it just—I mean, reading this book, it's rough. Okay, so. He's employing this really, and it's been talked about a lot. So Spiegelman is working in somewhat like postmodern techniques or, or strategies in the sense that he is depicting this really awful story of, of what happened to his family and, and the Holocaust in general. And he substitutes every human figure for um, a different animal. So in his story, the the Jews are mice. The Germans are cats. The the Polish are pigs. The French are rabbits. The Americans are dogs. So um, that gives us like a, a quick sort of way to differentiate like who is who in the story, which is fascinating, because, you know, ultimately, it sort of draws attention to how these different groups of people were identifying each other In Nazi-occupied Poland, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, so in Spiegelman's world, he makes them all different animals. So there's a lot of interesting narrative stuff happening here. So the story goes back and forth from like 1978 New York City, where Art Spiegelman is interviewing his father and is getting the whole story from his father who survived the Holocaust. Um, And he's an old father. Um, He and his father are estranged. And so interviewing his father is very much the sort of rekindling of their relationship. So it keeps going back and forth from the contemporary interview to the narrative present and then the narrative past, which is this... Nazi occupied Poland and um overall it's a super horrific traumatic story the sense of trauma that then is instilled into um Spiegelman the artist and the author this is interesting because Natalie is um our like resident sort of psychoanalytical art historian <laughs> who's researching transgenerational trauma if you're interested in that at all, um, the story of mouse is very interesting because it is a, a real story of not only the horrific things that art Spiegelman's parents went through, but also the way that he deals with having like, for instance, this story here. So it's like the very beginning of the first book. because um, in the, at least the copy that I have, it's, it's two volumes, but you can get like a, like a full bound volume of mouse. So in the first volume, Art Spiegelman is a child and, and he's at his childhood home in Rigo park, which is in New York city. And so it's 1958 and um, little Artie falls down in front of his house and his friends kind of laugh and run off without him. And he tearfully goes up to his father and, and kind of cries and complains about, like, oh, my friends left me behind. And and his father replies, friends? You're friends? If you lock them together in a room with no food for a week, then you could see what it is, friends. So the, these are, like, the memories that Art Spiegelman has growing up. And so this sort of ghost of the Holocaust really, like, stays it's like a permeable thing in his own childhood and you're getting all of this from the story. Mouse was the first graphic novel to win the Pulitzer Prize in 1992. It was one of the first graphic novels that received any real significant academic attention in the English speaking wor- uh, world and there are tons of academic articles, anything anywhere from art journals to like contemporary Jewish scholarship. This book has been taken very seriously. Mm
2: -hmm. And a few of the things I've read, sorry not to cut you off Jen, but a few of the things that I've read have referenced or for my thesis have referenced this book as just being one of the first to tackle the trouble of talking about it. And um yeah, and I haven't I haven't read it yet, which (coughs) I'm probably gonna steal Jen's copies tonight. Steal it. Um I've read about it and the impact that it's had, and um, and the quote that Jen read too is like very emblematic of the attitude that Holocaust survivors' children had. This idea of like it starts out with complaining and then getting the responses, kind of being like, "Oh, you think that's bad?" Yeah, or like, "Oh, you're complaining," <laughs> yeah. and then it eventually evolves into kind of just like a an internal guilt where. Everything you don't you don't have to say it out loud and hear the response. Everything that you do, instead of putting in in the perspective of your reality, you put it in the perspective of your parents' reality, which isn't quite fair to you. But it's also, I mean, how can you not at that point? you internalize like the experience. It's the whole in a much much more intense way. But the whole like when
1: I was your age, I had to walk up hill both ways in the snow to exactly. get to school, you know, or, or the, and, and all of a sudden you feel terrible, <laughs> like, Or how or could oh, I have
0: complained,
2: <laughs> there are children in Africa who aren't, who can't yeah. eat, you know, like, things like that, that people, that parents throw in their kids face to guilt them, like, mm-hmm. this is that, to the, like, tenfold, yeah, exactly. and it's
1: complicated because, like, I can only imagine being that child and being like, shit, you're right, like, because yeah. on some level they are right. But at the same time, your own experiences is being validated. So it's just like complicated. And
2: honestly, from what I've read, that almost seems, I, I don't know if you can decide which experience is better or worse, but in some, from some perspectives, it's the better experience oh. to have parents who say things like that rather than parents who don't want to talk about it yeah, at all. That's yeah, that's true. You know, like everyone coped differently. And and I think that's probably, I mean, I think Art Spiegelman would, you know, couldn't take credit for this book without the conversations with his father like yeah yeah if that communication wasn't open that we wouldn't have this important piece of
0: true i mean spiegelman time. only had his father to go off on uh, for these stories, his father actually destroyed his mother's diaries that recounted her experiences in Auschwitz because his father actually went to, um, I think I believe it was Bergen-Belsen um, concentration camp, his mother was in Auschwitz when Art Spiegelman was 20 years old, his mother committed suicide and so he never got to ask her about her experiences in Auschwitz and I I believe that All of these experiences really impacted the life of Spiegelman. He was in a mental hospital for a brief period in 1968. He did a lot of acid, a whole bunch of acid. Like you do in 1968. a lot of acid. and, uh, and, And then he had a nervous breakdown and he had to go to a mental hospital. And so he has very, he's talked a lot about this issue of transgenerational trauma. He's described feeling Like he was in a sibling rivalry with his ghost brother who was killed in the Holocaust. So this ghost brother who was like idealized, never threw a fit, never had a tantrum. So that is like a layer. Um, He lives with the knowledge of knowing like 85 of his relatives were living in the beginning of World War II. And out of those, only 13 survived. So it's a lot. He went through a lot. So that's, that's heavy. Yeah. So yeah. Um, really... And, and Spiegelman has left a legacy. Mouse is a huge sort of groundbreaking work in this idea of autobiographical graphic novels. And he inspired the artist that uh, Natalie is going to talk about, uh, Ms. Satrapi are we gonna should i go yeah go I, think, I think you should go all right nat's turn
2: and just to um finish up what jen was talking about though you that's interesting that you said that his mom was at auschwitz and he didn't get to hear her experience because isn't it called Auschwitz in the book oh is it isn't I, that the I concentration think, camp I, I think that in the book um am i making that up because I, like i said i've only read about it i've never read it but i thought for some
0: reason that the camp was called Mauschwitz. I don't think they changed the name. That might be the name of a chapter. Okay. I can't remember because the last time I read uh, Mouse was a couple years ago, but I read it a few times and you very well might be correct about that.
2: You know, you guys should read it and find out for yourselves.
0: Because
2: yeah. These look really <laughs> good. Way. Yeah, that's I-
0: gonna read it and uh, write a thesis so
2: I, I've wanted to read this for a few months now and my mini library I've acquired has kept me from getting to it But I am talking about my Jane Satrapi. Um I'm probably butchering her name because I'm American and I do not have a very pretty I can't really speak French or Iranian which is what she identifies with but so, you're working on that German I'm working on German <laughs> Which she also speaks. Let me just start. I wow. didn't know what I was going to throw in. The and she speaks, let me just, I have to actually reference my notes for this. Uh, Persian, French, English, German, Swedish, and Italian. That's Jeez. Amazing. She's a very intelligent woman. Insanely intelligent. What an inspiration. Yeah. I, I want to be you. I know. Right? That's, one t- that's six languages. Six. Wow. Um, that actually, like, when I hear those kind of stories, actually, though, it gives me, like,
1: it makes me feel good because like I really like language and I want to learn how to speak a lot of languages but I think it's really easy to get kind of like just be like it's just not possible to you know to like learn this whole language and it's like it is possible people speak a lot of languages (laughs) like you know what's crazy
0: is people in like not America, usually speak a lot of languages. Oh yeah, we're
2: so bad about that we here, are. and it's bullshit because like, half of the sucks. country, more than half of the country, has the attitude that if you're gonna live here, you gotta speak, you gotta speak English. You gotta, you gotta speak
1: American.
2: <laughs> oh, it's so bad. Yeah, no. it's stupid. God, it's awful. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So be more like Satrapi. brilliant woman. And it's so weird because with artists, you usually talk. You call, them by their last name, and I'm going to do that because I feel like I'm pronouncing it a little better, but I feel like I want to call her Marjane. I feel like I know her <laughs> in some weird way, which I don't. My, my girl Marjane. But the reason <laughs> that I probably feel that way is that her um, her first two books, it's kind of like Mouse, like a two-volume set, are autobiographical because she was born in Iran in November of 1969. Shout out, Mom. That's the same year you were born. Woo! And really, actually, that's really close to my mom's birthday. That's only two days away. So she is a is she Sagittarius? She's right on the cusp. She's the twenty second, twenty second. Yeah, she's a cusp,
1: Scorpio Scorpio
2: Sagittarius. Wow, she's a badass. That's a powerful cusp. (laughs) Damn. So yeah, her her laundry list of titles. (laughs) titles titles um she's a graphic novelist cartoonist illustrator film director and children's book author so she goes back and forth between different medium be it literature uh, illustration film and I'm so glad she does because she has such a unique story I mean not entirely unique but um you know it's unique in that only she experienced it and um I don't necessarily think that in america we get a ton of narrative from iran at all for for real (laughs) like there's an immense lack of and the narrative we do get is super stereotypical yeah negative and not personal so the fact that we're able to hear it from her and she doesn't you know i actually i was reading an interview that she does where she explicitly talks about this is her unique experience it's not her trying to be a historian in any way um, she's not trying to tell the story of Iran or the revolution or the aftermath. She's telling her own personal story, and um, it's it's super enlightening. Um, so give you some background on her, I gave you her birth year, so 1969. That means that she lived through the 1979 revolution in Iran, and that is kind of where her book, her um, autobiography, Persepolis, which is named after the... It's a palace um, from the Persian Empire, and it's huge. It's the biggest one that ever was. And now it's in ruins, but it's insanely famous. So Persepolis. Her parents were Marxists, and they were very against the last Shah of Iran. So the last Shah before the revolution in 1979. And after the revolution, her parents felt very intimidated by the Muslim reformists who took, or fundamentalists, who then took over. So, it you know, one of those ironic revolutionary twists where you fight really hard for it to happen, and then once it happens, someone else takes over, and you're still somehow, <laughs> and it's not, not any better. better. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. same thing
0: happened in Mexico. It's a that, very, thing, that
1: same thing has happened so many places. It's so a revolutionary
2: templates, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: We learned this. This was, mm-hmm. um you know, we took this, uh, art and revolution seminar and that's like, a, a tenet to revolution is that you have one and then someone comes in and goes, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be a new line of, line of memes made yeah. by Jen.
2: Revolutionary images and then just gotcha. We gotcha. <laughs> we gotcha. <laughs> um. So, needless to say, she's been exposed to multiple, multiple brutal regimes. She's experienced persecution. She's experienced arrests of people that she loves and knows and cares for. Um, She's experienced murder. And um, the most influential to her was her beloved uncle, Anoush, who um, she talks about in her first volume of Persepolis as being a political prisoner and eventually being exiled and it is extremely heartbreaking when she references it in the book because he um he really really cared for her not having any children he treated her like a daughter and when he um was set to be executed he was allowed to call one person to come visit him before and he chose her and she talks about it in the book and it's a really it's a
0: I would Obviously, try. it's
2: a heartbreaking moment, oh. but it's it's beautiful as well. And you can tell how much he means to her and how, how heavily influenced she was by the last words that he spoke with her. She lived, you know, the rest of her time in Iran throughout middle school in this very oppressive situation. You know, um, the Muslim fundamentalist really enforced rules that they kept women very suppressed (laughs) much more than they had been so again the western image of the woman a lot iranian woman a lot of times is that they've always been treated this way and that was not true at all it's you know it's such a complex issue that we should not really try and understand it unless you're speaking with someone so be wary of acting like islam is oppressive towards women (laughs) in all of its ways (laughs) i mean it's
1: really not more oppressive than like christianity exactly it's, like it's, it's pushed very... to its
2: extremes it can be that way yeah. it doesn't have to be and i think she does a great job of setting the stage for understanding that and she was very rebellious to the situation um so she would do things like it's really cute the illustrations but like she has a jacket that she's like oh, i forget the band but she was like listening to like Sorry heavy rock and stuff and she's buying records like on the essentially it's like the black market of whatever a middle schooler would be buying records from (laughs) but it's super cute and they okay they eventually make a movie version and in the movie version there's like a scene of her like marching down the street to the final countdown oh yeah i've seen those yeah it's super cute and it's in french so listening to the final countdown in french is just awesome in itself do they translate the song I don't remember it, in that in the like subtitles, but she's singing the final countdown in French. Oh, nice! Yeah, it's amazing. I'm, I'm so excited to watch this. Yeah, that
1: has actually been a winter break goal of mine is to watch more French films to like work on my French. So this is perfect.
2: Yeah, and you don't, and you just do without the subtitles. Or oh, you could do the subtitles. I'll without. probably do it. The subtitles. <laughs> <Every> <laughs> subtitle.
1: She's a badass. She doesn't need them. But she's gonna do them anyway. Uh, I do need them. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on my French. Let we'll me give get you there. credit.
2: Yeah, so she's lived through this experience. And then in 1983, due in part, according to her autobiography to her rebellion, her parents um, decide to send her away to school in Vienna. So she goes to school in Austria and finishes high school there is exposed to a lot of different people from different countries because it's a school where she's being sent. That inherently kind of means that kids are being sent there from other countries. So it's not just her in a sea of Austrians. It's just kind of a amalgamation of different kids from different countries. And on top of that, at 21, she meets a guy. In um, Iran.
0: Ooh, girl.
2: His name is Reza. (laughs) And she meets him at these um, secret parties that her friends would show because, or not show, would throw because, you know, they're not allowed to drink and all that forbidden stuff. So they would have parties where they would sneak alcohol and they could kind of smoke. Boys and girls could mix. They don't have to wear the hijab. You could, you know, a little more um, casual. So she meets him there. They get married. It lasts a short while, a little tumultuous relationship near the end. They divorce shortly after and she moves to France. From then, her second novel kind of goes through the later part of her life. But she ends up at this point in time, she's married. Happily, and she's living in Paris. She's speaking six languages like a badass. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so, she wrote Persepolis in 2000 in French. And um, she talks about, you know, she's asked on different occasions why she didn't write it in Persian. And she says it's not really for a Persian audience. (laughs) That's not who she's writing it to. If she had been writing it to a Persian audience, it would have been different. She wouldn't have felt the need to explain so many things that she really goes in depth to. So she really kind of is writing it towards a more like, quote unquote, Western audience. And that was her, you know, artistic choice. And in 2003, it's translated to English. I have one of the English versions. You should go pick one up. It's great. The beautiful thing about graphic novels too is they're not daunting. It's
0: easy read. Oh yeah. like easy read. Enjoyable. Reads. Yeah. Even when they're heavy, yeah. they're like yeah, hard. like and mouse she, you can get through in like a day. And
2: she has a great sense of humor, you guys. She's fantastic. You should really really check it out. And she I mean she illustrates these. So like I said before when I was leadi- reading all of these different titles, all these different things that she does, she's doing all of these illustrations and they're so so interesting. They get even more so in her, well, I guess it would be her third graphic novel because there's two parts to Persepolis. So it's called Embroideries. I don't want to say I liked it more, but I I got a kick out of this because she is essentially sitting down at tea with her grandmother, her mother, her aunt, and her neighbors and friends. And they are just having like ladies time and just kicking back and talking about lady stuff, which inherently evolves to like sex and marriage and relationships relationships. yeah and like the
0: best (laughs) i mean all the
2: stuff that we talk about when we sit down and have wine with one another and it's so great and you know in the illustrations it's like the best part is it, it begins with her um her grandmother talking to her grandfather and she you know makes a point to mention how respectful she is of him And she only ever calls him by his last name, Satrapi. And I guess that's that's a form of respect. And then it just devolves into this just, like, these great conversations about losing your virginity and, like, what happens if you lose your virginity before marriage and how the guy's going to find out. So how do you trick him out of finding out that you're – that you aren't a virgin? And, like, this one woman who's never seen a penis before – and they're like, but you have four kids. And she's like, let me tell you. And it's just <laughs> Yeah, so... how does that work? And like <laughs> plastic surgery. Like this one woman who gets, you know, she starts noticing that her husband's checking out other women. So she's like, I got a solution. I'm going to take all the fat from my ass and put it in my boobs. Oh. And like, boom, he's into me. <laughs> like um, Bada boom, bada yeah, bing. You know, it's just like, it's so down to earth and relatable and like. Not relatable at the same time because there's all of these different generations of experience. But it's so funny and sweet. Yeah, you got to read it. I am gonna leave it with one of these guys tonight because yeah, I think
1: we're gonna do because you're gonna take mouse and I'm gonna I'm gonna take these, so yeah, I think we're doing like a, do a little swap. comic swap tonight. Um, yeah, but I gotta
2: leave it on this because she's just she's so well spoken and it it shows in her books. But um, this quote from an interview really struck me. Um, she's kind of talking about feminist ideas because. If you don't know too much about the Iranian revolution, um, the result was the overthrow of the Shah and then the takeover of the Muslim fundamentalists, which are extremists, and so women lost a lot of their rights. And, um, you know, from an outsider's perspective, that seems all wrong. And from from someone who was there, it, it wasn't great either, but she has a really interesting outlook on it because she talks about the fact that, you know, they can they can only take away so much. She takes away the idea that it's men versus women. And she really tries to push this idea of just human beings. And I think that's a great feminist twist. I mean, feminism's different for everyone. But um, for her, the plus is that women are losing rights at this time. But now the result is that because women are treated as half of a man, in post-revolutionary Iran that women, um, there's more of an impetus for them to become educated and um, to kind of push for a better life. So if you're told you're half of whatever someone else is, that means you have to work twice as hard, which is not fair, but it means that girls are working twice as hard. So in in education, 70% of students in Iran are girls. So that means that what, 70 to 30, that that many more girls are getting educated than men. And I'm totally paraphrasing. These are all things that she has said. I'm not, I I was not there for post-revolutionary Iran. I don't know. But she was and she knows all of this information. So I mean, women are going to be smarter than their husbands, than their fathers, than their brothers, they're going to be more educated. And that's a really positive aspect of all the negativity that can be drawn from women lo- losing their rights that you can't take away their mental strength and that they can still keep um, building on that and hopefully that will lead that will lead um, them toward where they need to go and we'll see a democratization of Iran that's that's what she's been saying so I, I believe her because I believe everything she says because I think she's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> And I will finish with this quote that I mentioned probably 10 minutes ago at this point. So she says, the only person who stops us from being free is ourselves. Nobody can take your freedom. I mean, I have lived in a dictatorship. I know what I'm talking about. Can't argue with that. She knows what she's
1: talking about. She knows what
2: she's talking about. And you should listen. We should all listen. So read, buy her books, read them. There are even more that I haven't read. I believe she's come out with two since um, Embroideries. so freedom. She's a genius. What a babe. Yes. She's an honorary babe, for sure. So rad.
0: As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like, not at all. It's inanimate, and utterly without brain function. But... Despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch garden gnomes too carefully. People might talk.
1: Speaking of honorary babes, I have another one I'm going to talk about. So I um, am going going to kind of... Briefly give a rundown of Alison Bechdel, a important contemporary graphic novelist, comic, illustrator, writer. She graduated from Oberlin in 1981 with a degree in studio arts and art history. So she is an art history babe. Girl. (laughs) So she first kind of came on the scene with her comic strip in 1983 called Dykes to Watch Out For. Um, oh
0: my god! Uh, yeah, <laughs> I want to read that.
1: Yeah, and that's actually her website. Like Allison Beckdell's website is dykes to watch out for uh, which is dope as shit. This comic strip it ran um, intermittently from 80, 83 to two thousand and eight. It was about essentially, like, the urban lesbian community at that time. Alison Bechdel, you know, identifies as lesbian, so it's very much just, like, her own experience and characters molded af- after people in her life. And as we all know, like, being queer in the 80s was a complicated thing, as it was in the 90s, as it continues to be to an extent now. So it was yeah, yeah. it was very much um, trying to bring that existence to the forefront, forefront as, like, here's another way of being a human and um and i and a lot of these comic strips are available on the website um not all of them but but a lot of them have been released and in researching for this i went back through and looked through some of these comic strips cuz i actually wasn't familiar with it and it was really interesting cuz one of the first ones that's posted is from 1987 and it's called high anxiety and it's this comic strip and one of the characters gets really because a lot of her work's very political and one of the characters in the strip gets really worked up about nazism and the kkk and the bombing of abortion clinics and i and this is 1987 and i was like that is so real right now (laughs) like not much has changed i know it's been like 30 years damn it's almost 2017 and we're dealing with the same bullshit that makes me upset i know right Um, so I like, that was my first instinct in reading this. I was like, whoa, like that is something that's giving me high anxiety right now. (laughs) Um, so, and then there was another one that was really interesting. That was all the way from, it was 2008. So jump forward quite a, quite a ways called rent, but it was about in 2008 when Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were up against each other. And it was really interesting because there's these different like viewpoints, and one of the, one of the stills, like one of the characters says something about how much red states hate Clinton with a fiery passion and how they'll like annihilate her. And now we're like living that. And I'm just like, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> Is she a witch? I know. How does she know? How does she know everything? It's, it's it's so true though. That was a huge, I remember back in 08, that was a huge argument against clinton from the obama camp because i was i was one of the obama camp and we were all like oh hillary will never be able to win the general election and it's like it sucks it sucks really
2: i I feel bad for calling her a witch we just all need to pay a lot more attention to what's happening (laughs) for real because it was
0: it's so real everything is there people just ignore it don't play into the patriarchy Uh,
1: for real but anyways so i just thought that was interesting because it's it's a it's obviously a big thing we're dealing with now. But so Alison Bechdel, she's super important just in terms of like feminism and shit. In 2006, she came out with Fun Home, a family tragicomic. I read that one. It's so good. It's so good. Um I yeah, I read it as well. I don't have it with me unfortunately. Um but it's um Time Magazine named Time Magazine named it the best book of 2006, which is a that's a big thing. That's huge. Yeah, it's like huge. best book. Like not even best comic. Like best book. And it's really just this like deeply, deeply personal story of her closeted bisexual father's suicide. And what's so cool about this story is, and she she both wrote it and did the illustrations for it. It's all her. And what's so interesting about it is, on one hand, it is your your you know your coming out saga. Your you know that's the the tip. Story we hear with regards to like LGBTQ. Um, It's that typical, it's that coming out saga, but it's like so much different because she's simultaneously investigating her father's sexuality while also realizing that she is gay. So it's like this whole multi layered coming to terms with like your identity and your sexuality. But more so that so it's obviously very important. And when it came out in 2006, six was very important to queer communities, to queer identity, obviously representation as everything. But at the same time, I mean, at the end of the day, it was really just this like dark, funny story of a complicated human relationship. And no matter who you are, when you read it, that's what you get from it. It's not, it's not this, in in my opinion, this overt, like, thing about being gay. It's about a human relationship and how complicated and weird they get, right. you know? Because um, it's obviously, yes, it is her coming to terms with her sexuality, but it's also her trying to figure out her father who's very like distant and confusing in some ways because he's dealing with his own identity
0: yeah it's a very intimate story and it resists being like pigeonholed into like this is queer lit yeah or this yeah is women's lit or whatever it's just intimate and personal it's and, just uh, human
2: yeah it's Deeply human. She and Sacha P need to get together because she has an amazing quote in one of her interviews where she's kind of talking about that categorizing of gender and she's like so because I have nipples which doesn't quite make sense because we all have nipples but <laughs> she's like, yeah, because I have nipples like I have to go to a women's litter literary conference versus just like a literary conference like that means I write differently like yeah that, that, that's a very real thing which you know I've heard men say that they can tell the difference between women's writing and men's writing like you don't have to tell them who wrote it if you give them two novels they can tell the difference and like shut that up that always bothers yeah. me like yeah. i resent people for that because That's just saying that you can is obnoxious like
0: even if you can't like, oh, just like, you that, like, the, oh like you have like the so, the oh. you just know like you can just tell right just and honestly give them
2: thousands of books and be like and and even if they can like so what so maybe women have more empathy and like exactly i almost anything like it means that we can touch on things that men can't exactly
1: if anything i think of it almost as a positive thing because if you can tell the difference between women's and men's writing it's usually because women's writing has something that's lacking in men's writing you know so it's like yeah, yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah, a, a, a collabo between the two of them would oh my be insane. Dang, <laughs> um, dang. That's so it happen right here. We should. We're, We're should, calling for it. We should make that make that a thing. In 2012, Alison Bechtel comes out with "Are You My Mother," which is really interesting because it's basically like the the other half of the story. It explores her complicated relationship with her mother. And, Damn. yeah, and it's so raw, and it's so good, and I want to read that if you can in any way relate to having a complicated relationship with your mother yes. or maybe I having can. communication issues, no. this, yeah, I love
0: you, Mom. <laughs> we speak different <laughs> languages, mom.
1: yeah, like if you I think everyone. Can If you can, if you can relate to that, this book gets so real and you're just like, shit, (laughs) like it's very, a friend of mine gave this to me for Christmas and I, like afterwards I called him and I was like, like, did, did you read this before? Like, did you know what you were doing? Because it. It was so real to, like, my own, you know, complicated experience. Sounds like
0: it would make me cry. It did,
1: I think. Dang Um, it. But it does. So, it basically, so Fun Home, she explores this really complicated relationship with her father. And then in Are You My Mother, she explores this complicated relationship with her mother. But they're very different. Like, the approach is completely different. And in Are You My Mother, she... It's very psychological. There's kind of um, interaction with Freudian theory. And then she incorporates all these theories of British psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott. Um, So it's like this whole, she's taking from her life. She's taking from conversations with her mother and experiences with her mother. And she's incorporating this contemporary psychological bend to it. It's really deep. It's really heavy. You after you read it, you feel like you just got out of like a therapist's office. It's I want to read it. It's really good. That's I'll awesome. give that to you. <gasps> we'll just all yeah, yeah, rotate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll be great. Um, so it's. I mean, in, call my mom and in, and in, in one, in one, mom. <laughs> <laughs> why you um, do this? Why? But once again, just like Fun Home, it's funny at at times. But it's raw, and it's real, and it's kind of uncomfortable, but that's what makes it so beautiful. So those are her two big graphic novels. In terms of just feminism, though, she also has a very important contribution, um, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with. Because I was familiar with it for a long time before I even put two and two together. I did not realize that the author of these novels was the same person responsible for this. But um, the Bechdel test, which is, it's also known as the Bechdel-Wallace test.
0: Is that what it's called? The Bechdel test? Like after her? Yes. Or, whoa. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, it's So the Bechdel test, if you're not familiar with it, is a metric used to basically gauge gender equality in um, fiction, particularly film. It's used a lot in regards to film criticism. And the Bechdel test. Um, what it is, is you you know, read a piece of fiction or you watch a film and you're supposed to ask yourself three questions. And those three questions are, are there at least two female characters? Do they talk to each other? And do they talk about something other than a man? And if you can't answer yes to all three of those questions, then it's failed the Bechdel test.
0: Um, oh that's yeah. crazy i love it
2: yeah wow. and wow and those are very like that's not asking a lot i know either. and it's, but like i bet there's so many that don't meet that
1: ex- oh 100 wow. and and it's a it's a very important test and if if you are familiar with like it's it's almost frustrating because since i learned i learned about it a while ago and since i learned about it i can't watch a movie without without doing it i actually watched Around the the Halloween season, I watched Practical Magic because it was on Netflix. And I it might have passed, but I, like, watched that movie, and if it did pass, it just barely passed. Which was, like, really crazy because it's a movie all about all about females like all the characters are female all the main characters are female and it's about females with these supernatural powers that can do anything and still i cannot for certain say that they ever had a conversation that wasn't revolving around men and i was like god damn it i love this movie but now i don't know if i can love it as much (laughs) you know what i mean it's like the whole like you know, waking the illusion up. Is yeah, the illusion is shattered. I mean, I still think there are some good things about that movie, but it—if it passed the Bechdel test, it passed it just barely. Um, so. If you are familiar with this test, it's been very commonly, it's basically the primary standard um, that feminist critics use to judge television, movie, books, and other media. It's it's a simple test, but it's straightforward and it makes sense. And it came from the, it first showed up in the, the comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For. And it was basically a joke and she was influenced by her friend Liz Wallace apparently she gives a lot of credit to to her friend for this idea and it shows up in this comic strip very you know kind of as this joke like a uh, lesbian couple is going to go out to see a movie and one of the girls is like um, I'll only see a movie if it you know passes these three things and then they don't find anything so they don't <laughs> go to a movie um, and it Ended up being this whole metric um, that it is now. And it's a big thing. That's Um, great. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's really simple, too. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) yeah. So when you're watching a movie, ask yourself those three questions to see if it passed the Bechdel test. But yeah, in general, she's just been a really important voice. She's been a really important voice for lesbian representation, but she's been a very important voice for feminism. And I'll kind of end it on a quote by her. Which is, the secret subversive goal of my work is to show that women, not just lesbians, are regular human beings. Damn. So yeah. just feminism, lady power all the way. And, and and her graphic novels succeed in this in every way. Like, it is the most raw human writing. And it just, like, yeah, it reminds you of these complicated relationships and these things we all have to come to terms with, be it around your sexuality or your relationship with your parents or whatever it is like it's just human and yeah i would i would very much recommend uh, you've got i mean i know you've got a lot of recommendations on your plate now but i would very much recommend you pick these up as well um fun home as well as are you my mother they're both very good you could
2: probably read all of these in like a week yeah no even if you have like a full-time job Because it's, I mean, they're picture books, but, like, more intense. (laughs) Yeah, honestly,
0: like, I think that there are several graphic novels that you can read through, and I've done it, where I've gotten a new comic book, and I just sit and read it and won't put it down until it's done. But then you go back and you reread, because there's so much going on. I mean, especially the case of, like, authors that are working with really heavy subjects, um, such as like the Holocaust in mouse or, you know, Watchmen deals with this kind of like dystopian future. It's not really a future. It's like 1980s, but this whole like fear of uh, like a nuclear Holocaust that Alan Moore is discussing in that work, you know, you can read the whole thing, but then you want to go back and pick it apart. And that's, what's so fun about graphic novels I feel is you remember the image that reminds you of the text and then you go back and and you try to you know find it and and you remember the images and the images remind you of a part of the story and it's just I don't know it's so fun if I could read everything in a graphic novel format that would just make reading so much cooler (laughs) yeah
1: we're visual people (laughs) it's true I mean I love Reading in general too, but it's, it's nice to have the images as well. I think it adds something to it. Yeah. And you can, sometimes even just the same way we get lost in art, you can get lost in the images and, you know, take a break from the text and stuff, which is cool. But yeah, I think, I mean, I'm sure in the future we'll do more in involving comics. Oh, for sure. There's a lot to talk about. Yeah. But if nothing, I think we gave you some really good suggestions for some bomb ass,
0: Bomb ass.
1: <laughs> some, uh, yeah, some, some great comics, some great graphic novels to check out. Listener mail, we gotta do that.
0: Oh boy, listener mail. You want to read this one, Jen? Fo show. This one is from Katie, and she says, "I found your podcast at literally the perfect point in time in my life." I had just recently decided that I didn't want to continue my career for the rest of my working life, and I'd been thinking very heavily for a while about going back to college to get my degree in art history, as I've always been extremely interested in and passionate about visual culture and art history. Yeah, girl. Good idea. Do it. One day, I was on the art history subreddit when someone posted your Bob Ross podcast, and Bob Ross, being one of my favorite people ever, I had to listen. I have never laughed or cried so much at a podcast before and instantly was charmed by you four babes. I love how you make each subject so interesting and present it in a way that reminds everyone it's okay to show you're excited and passionate about what you're researching. I listened to more episodes, and after a few weeks, it definitely helped me see that I should reapply for college. So I did. We'll see what happens. However, you babes are awesome. Keep up the amazing work. I look forward to hearing what else you have to say in the future. I think you have a really special podcast. Best wishes, Katie. Katie! That's so amazing! Yes, the Katie! For, you're doing the, the right thing. You're doing the right thing. You are. That just, like,
1: anytime we get any listener mail that's, like, people feeling inspired by us, it just, like... It fills my heart. It does. And my I'm, heart is so full, and I just feel warm and happy, and I'm... Just like that's crazy that we did that, but it makes me so proud, and, and I'm it, so and glad and we, we laughed we and
0: cried in Bob Ross episode two. <laughs> a lot of laughing, a lot of crying.
2: <laughs> we're but. very happy for you, Katie. We're we're always excited. By listeners being inspired in whichever way that it manifests, but school obviously holds like a special place in our hearts at this point in time. Yeah, especially (laughs) when we're we're going going through like, oh, we're so stressed. (laughs) We definitely like to hear other people who are going to go through the same experience. (laughs)
1: Exactly. And I mean, our whole idea behind this podcast is, you know, is trying to make art history relatable and like, like make people believe that it's something worth studying and something worth knowing about so like hearing that that someone is inspired to further their path in art history it just it just makes my day yes.
0: that really makes my day it makes my week okay it makes it makes 2016 better uh, honestly. i'm <laughs> so excited i'm so excited for the you <laughs> I'm so excited for you, and I hope that you'll update us as your um, whole venture uh, is underway. And yeah, just, you know, allow yourself to be interested in a bunch of different aspects of the history of art. And, you know, if something just really turns you on, that's what you got to do, no matter how like, small or strange it may seem, just run with it. Just go for it. That's what it's all about.
1: But thank you so much for listening, Katie. You're a doll. Uh, Thank you to everyone else for listening. If you like our podcast and you want to help us out, uh, make sure to rate us and write a review on iTunes. It is how we get noticed. You Mm -hmm. can also, if it if you're in the giving mood, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash art history babes. Any type of financial help is great. Like literally a dollar is great. Like it's all great. It's, um, it does so much. It really does. Mm-hmm. It really does because obviously like money goes into this podcast and a lot of time goes into this podcast. So really anything helps. Um If you're enjoying this and you can help out, we appreciate it. Uh, You can also find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram at Art History Babes Podcast and Twitter at, at Art History Babes. Follow us, like us, share us. Everything just is amazing and super helpful. And we really appreciate all of you for listening to us. So much. You guys are great. So, yeah, we hope you enjoyed our first episode on comics. I'm sure there'll be more to it if you have any thoughts or any, anything you'd like to add, please send us an email at arthistorybabes at gmail.com. And uh, we will catch you next time. Catch you later. Bye.
0: From Cabernet. GEICO presents, oh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, While you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? (laughs) My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. (laughs) The GEICO Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit GEICO.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance.